So we've been in this series for a, a few weeks now. We're talking about the one thing. If you only had one message to give to the people in your life, if you only had one thing to live for, if you had only, only one thing that people around you knew you for, what would that one thing be? And I said a couple weeks ago, I want my one thing to be the thing that was Jesus's one thing. I want my one thing to line up with Jesus's one thing. And Jesus was once asked, what is the one thing that we should pay attention to? What is the one thing that we should do? And so here's the verse again. We've had it up every week so far. Let's do it again from Mark chapter 12. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating, noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, remember testing him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The most important one is to know that God is one, but Jesus isn't done. He keeps talking. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so the one command starts with two sentences. And then Jesus keeps talking. He says, and the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus says there is one thing above all other things. And that one thing is these three things. Know who God is. He is one. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And that's just one thing. Even though it sounds like two or three things, it's just one thing. And I want my one thing to be Jesus' one thing. Now, so in the past a couple of weeks, we've covered what it means to love God from your heart. And I didn't get all the way into all of the things that that implies. We just talked about one of the areas, which is to actually love God emotionally to actually have an emotional connection with who God is. And then last week, we talked about loving God with your soul. And that's one that I don't even know if we did it right because we don't have physical or direct emotional or direct mental access to our soul. Our soul is that deepest part of us that God forms and that our life also forms, but we can't change it or directly affect it. It's just it's just something that God is working on on the deep inside of who we are. It's the part of us that lives after we die, but then we'll be reunited with our bodies in the resurrection. That's the soul. We talked a little bit about that last week. But this week, we're going to look at the mind. And the mind is a difficult thing for Christians sometimes. And um, it's a difficult thing for Christians in two hypocritically opposite ways. And so I'm going to get to that in just a little bit. But before we do, I want to lay out for you the fundamental big idea for today. No blanks to fill in. I'm just going to put it on the screen and read it to you. It says this, the God who gave me my mind wants me to, lo wants me to love him with my mind, not by limiting it, but by using it well. The God who gave me my mind wants me to love him with my mind, not by limiting it, but by using it well. There's a very interesting thing that I think sometimes Christians do, which is to try to limit their mental processes to the things they think will please God. And they're like, there's a, there's a way of thinking that pleases God, and so I want to limit my mind to those things. And it might be kind of the right intention, but it is the wrong mechanism, the wrong thing to do to love God with your mind. Christians have a love-hate relationship with thinking. Or to be more accurate, Christians have a love relationship with selective thinking. We love to think about certain things 
and to not think about other things. When I was in high school, I've told you, um, I had a, a professor, a teacher in high school who um, I think a couple weeks ago I, I shared something about his particular nuances in class and how I tried to get the best of him sometimes in class. But anyway, my, my teacher, this particular teacher, same person, he taught both Bible and science because I went to a Christian school. He didn't teach all the science classes, but he taught one of the science classes. And he didn't teach all the Bible classes, but he taught one of my Bible classes. And I kid you not, in every one of our classes that I had with this fellow, he spoke repeatedly about a principle that he thought Christians needed to know called critical thinking. He wanted us to think critically. And so every day he would give us critical thinking worksheets. And these were worksheets of something that we would read, and then we would analyze what we had read, and then we would write down why the thing was right or wrong, whatever it was. And he gave us a lot of critical thinking worksheets, critical thinking worksheets about, you know, evolution and critical thinking worksheets about, um, you know, the, the potential of climate change and critical thinking worksheets about current events like political things that were going on and critical thinking worksheets that basically gave us a whole bunch of things that we were supposed to analyze what was wrong with them. And never once, it didn't strike me as interesting back then, but it does now. I mean, interesting in the sense that sad, but I I realize now something that was going on. We never once got a critical thinking worksheet in our Bible class about the Bible. Never once did he give us a passage of Scripture and say, now I want you to analyze this passage of Scripture and tell me the things you agree with and the things you don't agree with. Never once did he say, analyze this passage of Scripture and tell me how you agree or disagree with me and my perspective on that passage. Never once were we asked to think critically about anything spiritual But on a regular basis, we were asked to think critically about all the things in the world around us. And it's fascinating to me that Christians, maybe this isn't your experience, but it was definitely my experience being raised in a rather conservative, um, white evangelical Christian school environment my entire time growing up. But the thing that fascinates me is how selective we can be with our analysis of things. There are some things that analysis is great, and there are other times where when you begin to analyze it, someone will say, oh, no, 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 we don't doubt that. That's just a matter of faith. We just go with that one. That's just an issue of faith. And so there was a professor in my college. The year before I got to this particular college, he wrote a book. His name is Mark Knoll, and he wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It was just re-released in a 30th anniversary edition, which reminds me how old I am. But he just re-released the book, and it's more relevant now than ever, but its opening line says this, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. And his point was that people who call themselves evangelicals, and that's what I've called myself for almost my entire life, people who call themselves evangelicals don't think robustly about things in the world they need to be thinking about. It's a very challenging book. It was not widely received with love. It was widely received with some measure of scorn, but it was definitely a popular book for a period of time. I had one class with this guy, and he was my favorite history teacher of all time. But because 
history is valuable, I want to share with you a quotation from someone you might recognize. This fellow, his name is Isaac Newton. Yeah, that guy. Okay? Isaac Newton, I want to share with you what he wrote in the last few paragraphs of his main work. His main work is called Principia Mathematica, or The Principles of Mathematics and Natural Philosophy, in which he basically invents gravity and the whole theory of gravity, and he invents science and the whole idea of hypothesis and theory and doing testing, and he basically invents the whole idea of using math with regard to science. It's amazing. But these are his last words. In the very end of the book, I'll put it up here on the screen, and I'm, I'm taking snippets out of his last three paragraphs because they were long and arduous. Like that word? That's a pretty good word, right? Anyway, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Now, I want to I let you key in on that. Sir Isaac Newton, one of the greatest scientific minds of human history, declares that he is convinced that the thing he is studying is the handiwork of God. And see what he has to say about it. He says, and if the fixed stars are the centers of other like systems, pause there for just a moment. This is like hundreds of years ago where he supposes that our sun is just a star and the other stars out there might be suns themselves and might have planets around them. And it's only in like the last 50 years that we've been able to prove that's true. But this guy said, I think it probably is the case because he believes in a consistent God. And if God is going to do something one place, he might do that same thing somewhere else too. He says, lest the systems of the fixed stars should by their gravity fall on each other mutually, he hath placed those systems at immense distances one from another. And so he's the one who says, you know what? Maybe stars are really far away from each other. Yeah, maybe that's an interesting thing. And keep going. He says this, this being governs all things. The supreme God is a being eternal, infinite, absolutely perfect. He is eternal and infinite, omnipotent and omniscient. That is his duration reaches from eternity to eternity. His presence from infinity to infinity. He governs all things and knows all things that are or can be done. And then I love this line. He says, we admire him for his perfections. But we reverence and adore him on account of his dominion, for we adore him as his servants. And then, to close out his book, he says something that is so humble, I am humbled by it. He says, Hitherto we have explained the phenomena of the heavens and of our sea by the power of gravity, but have not yet assigned the cause of this power. Check this out. This is interesting. Two things he's doing here that are really fascinating. One, he completely and utterly worships God. He thinks God is in charge of all things. But he has not said that gravity is just God. He says, I've described gravity, but I haven't yet described how it works. He could have said, oh, that's just God. God is just doing it. But he doesn't. Because even though he loves God, he also knows there's a difference between who God is and how God does. 
And he wants to know the how. And so he says, I don't know. And he's humble enough to say, I haven't even tried to guess yet. See what it says next. But hitherto, I have not been able to discover the cause of those properties of gravity from phenomena. And I frame no hypotheses. I'm not even going to guess. For whatever is not deduced from the phenomena is to be called a hypothesis. If I don't know it from evidence, I'm just going to call it a guess. And keep going. He says, in this philosophy, next one, Next slide. There it is. In this philosophy, particular propositions are inferred from the phenomena and afterwards rendered general by induction. That is one of the best definitions of science that I think I've ever seen. This is how science works. He calls it a philosophy. We call it science, whatever. He says, this is how it works. You make propositions because you've made an inference from phenomena, something that you've watched. And then later on, you use more induction to make it more general. That is brilliant. This guy is worshiping God with his science. This guy is worshiping the God who does the thing behind the science. This guy is worshiping the God who gave him the mind to understand the things that are out there in the world around him. And I love Isaac Newton for this. He is so brilliant in his science and so amazing in his devotion to this supreme being that he's willing to worship. And it's not just mental activity with regard to, like, you know, science. There's also another half of your brain that you might use sometime, like the right half that sometimes is artistic and, and experiences the world more richly than just in A, B, C, and D. And so I pulled out a guy named Johann Sebastian Bach, and I wanted to show you something that Bach wrote this guy is widely understood to be perhaps the greatest musician who ever lived. He's the one who did Toccata and Fugue. You know that Halloween one that we've all heard in every horror show. But Johann Sebastian Bach, in a song entitled Come Holy Spirit, he writes these words, translated of course. Come Holy Spirit, Lord God. Fill with your treasure of grace, the heart, will, and mind of yours in the faith. Your ardent love inflame in them. If it made sense for me to write music to box lyrics, I would have tried to do that today. And if it made sense for us to try to sing box music with these lyrics, we might have tried it today. But he's too good. He's just too good. And it's amazing. You know, it's not just that he had a job writing music for the church, and so he wrote lyrics like this. It's that he had a personal faith. We now have his Bible. We have at least one of the Bibles that Bach used. And it's a Bible that includes a commentary with it, and he's got notes all through it. I want to show you this one quote I found in the New York Times of all places. He says, he wrote in the margin of his copy of Abraham Kalav's Bible commentary, where there is devotional music, God with his grace is always present. And he knew that there was a, there was a God present in the beautiful artistry of the music that he was producing. But Bach was also an interesting fellow because 
Another part of that same article shares slightly a different idea going on in Bach's own heart and mind. Let me show this to you. Quoted almost from the article, it says, both Bach's music and his Bible notations put powerful stress upon, one, contempt for human reason, along with the exalting of biblical revelation as the proper arbiter of truth. You see, the, the amazing mind of Johann Sebastian Bach that could produce all this amazing music, which if you analyze his music, is more cerebral and brainy than anyone else's music. Like it has so many of just interweaving parts of math and stuff. You can almost study science from what Bach does with music. It's amazing how cerebral he is. And yet, he himself did not, he was not a fan of human intellect. He was not a fan of human reason. You see, Christians have a love-hate relationship with thinking. Sometimes it's amazing and we love thinking and sometimes we don't. And if it's the kind of thinking we like, we love it. And if it's the kind of thinking we don't, we fear it or avoid it or push it away. And today, I want to ask you to do something that is going to be really, really hard. It's difficult for me to, but I'm going to ask you to try to love God with your mind. But the only way to love God with your mind is to stop letting you control your mind alone. The only way to love God with your mind is to allow the God who made your mind to continue to grow your mind. The only way to love God with your mind is to honor the other minds that God has created and allow their influence from their minds into your mind. The only way to love God with your mind is to allow everything that your mind was created to be and to do to flourish. So I want to share with you a couple things today. And I I told Jen last night and and the day before and this morning that I'm, I'm confused about where this passage, where this message needs to go. And so I'm going to toss out a bunch of things that some of them are going to offend you. Some of them hopefully won't. Some of them you're going to want to rah, rah and maybe tweet it. And some of them you're going to be like, oh, I didn't think a pastor should say that sort of thing out loud. But, but guess what? Most of the people who are upset with me have already left by now. And so I'm, I think... I think the sad thing is I feel like I'm preaching to the choir like you guys probably already know the kinds of things that I'm going to say and that really bothers me. So maybe maybe some point in time, you know, you should tweet something that I say but probably not because the truth of the matter is we need relationship before we need sound bites. And um, anyway, that's getting on a totally different soapbox. But I have a soapbox for today that I should probably get back on and here it is. I think there are three reasons why Christians have a problem being smart. I think there are three Christians why Chris, three reasons why Christians are anti-intellectual, and they're all biblical reasons, and I'm going to show them to you today. Here's the first one. We want a really simple and straightforward message. We want a simple and straightforward message. We desire it. We want to be people who can go to the world around us and say something just simple and straightforward. Jesus died for your sins and you can have eternal life and a relationship with God if you receive him. We want a simple and straightforward message. And it's really easy if you keep things simple and straightforward. Let me show you where we get this idea. It comes from the Apostle Paul. 
In 1 Corinthians, he says this. Let's put it up on the screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before? I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I've heard it a ton. I heard it yesterday. I was in a pastor's meeting with a couple other pastors and we were talking about some, some important things about you know, how, to, how to reach the unchurched world around us. And one of the guys pulled out his Bible and he was like, I got a verse for this. He's like, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And it was like, let's just get the, the simplicity of the gospel in front of people. And let's just, let's use do that. And don't get me wrong. I agree with Paul. There was a time when Paul was in front of the Corinthian people and he made a decision. He resolved to know nothing at that moment with them except to present this one fact about the gospel. Jesus Christ died, he rose again, and he is the answer. And that was awesome that Paul did that that one time. And so as a result, I don't want to make my entire life based upon that one time that the Apostle Paul did that one technique, that one tactic. In fact, it's incredibly dangerous if you apply a part of the Bible to the wrong context. It's incredibly dangerous if you say, I just want to do the simple, straightforward thing. And then you apply that in an area where you don't know what the simple and straightforward thing is. Let me give you an example, okay? This is one of those times where I'm going to share something with you that either A, you've already heard me say before, or B, is going to absolutely blow your mind and maybe you'll think I'm a heretic, okay? I'm going to share some, something like that with you, but I'm just warning you it's coming, okay? So I, I don't know where this is going to go, but let's just pray that God leads it in a good place. Isaiah 14 verse 12 through 14. I'm going to read it to you in the NIV, and then I'm going to read it to you um, a little bit from the King James Version. Okay, so here's from the NIV. It says, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. Keep going. It says, On the utmost heights of Mount Zephon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Now, don't give me any other indication, but if you've ever heard someone read that or talk about that, would you raise your hand and let me know if I'm speaking to people who've ever heard this verse before? Okay. Some of you, some of you have. Let me read it to you in the King James Version. Okay. Uh, Isaiah 14, verse 12, King James Version says this. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? Art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? How many of you have ever heard the word Lucifer before? Okay, a few more people have heard the word Lucifer before. You might be interested to know that the word Lucifer shows up one time in the entirety of the Bible, and it is in the only... It is only in the King James Version, translating Isaiah 14, verse 12. And it is because the Latin word Lucifer means morning star. 
And someone, when they were translating the King James into English, decided rather than translating the word to morning star, they would capitalize the word and make it Lucifer. And now, for some strange reason, people think that Lucifer is one of the names for Satan. And do you know why they think that? Because this passage says, How art thou fallen from heaven? You said, I will ascend and be like the Most High. And oh my goodness, that must mean that Satan wanted to be like God. And he decided to try to be like God. And so then God said, no, you can't be like me. And so God cast him down from heaven to the earth. And that's the story of how Satan became Satan. And some of you have heard this story before. Some of you, maybe you've never even really heard it in church, but you've just heard the rumors of it swirling around. And yet this is based on two complete interesting things that simple-minded reading of scripture can get you to. Number one, let Let's just capitalize the word and not translate it. Number two, let's now think what that word must mean. Number three, let's now conclude that it's Satan. And so what happens is it's a back and forth thing from someone who chooses to use the word Lucifer to someone else saying, oh, that must be Satan's origin story, to now saying, oh, Lucifer must be another word for Satan. But I'll let you know something. If you keep reading the very next verse, you see something interesting. I'll read it again to you in context, and I'll keep going all the way to verse 16. It says this, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. On the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you. They ponder your fate. Is this... The man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? This is talking about a dude. It's talking about a dude. In fact, if you had read in context, you would have seen verse 4, which comes before all of these. Let me show you that one. In Isaiah 14, verse 4, it says, You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, how the oppressor has come to an end, how his fury has ended. Listen, it's possible that Satan's origin story involves him trying to overtake God and then being cast out of Satan, cast out of heaven. It's possible. Problem is, the Bible doesn't teach it. What the Bible teaches is that the king of Babylon tried to be like God on earth. He tried to build a big tower. He tried to go up to the heavens. He tried to be so important. And God says, nope, you're not. The whole world is going to make fun of you when you fall. That's what Isaiah 14 is all about. Is it also about Satan? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't say so. One of these days, I'll ask God and see, you know, what's the deal with the whole Satan origin story? Because, you know, I'm a, I like Marvel. I want to hear the origin stories of all the crazy things that are out there, you know? I'm curious about the origin story. It just so happens that to love God with my mind means I can't accept this myth. I, I want to pay attention to what he actually tries to teach me, not just the stuff someone else says might be the case. I'll show you another one. John chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Problem. The Jehovah's Witnesses knew just enough Greek when they translated the New Testament to mistranslate this verse. 
And they mistranslated this verse to say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And there's a very big difference between saying the Word was God and the Word was a God. And so their conclusion is that the Word refers to Jesus, and the Word must be the first created being, that God created the Word, and the Word is sort of God-like, but not necessarily God. And guess what? Guess what? In a recent survey among people who claimed to be like Bible-believing Christians, 30% of American Bible-believing Christians... 30% think that Jesus was from the beginning with God. And 70% think that Jesus was the first created being. On top of that, skip ahead to verse 14. Check this out. If you add verse 14 to that, you get, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. This is talking about Jesus, the Son of God, who was with God in the beginning, who is God and is with God, somehow both, and He comes to earth, somehow comes to earth, and then here on earth, we get to meet Him and understand Him and and see Him and stuff. And that's amazing. And guess what? In America, only 30% of American Bible-believing Christians think that Jesus is God in the flesh. 70% of Bible-believing Christians in America don't even know that the Bible teaches Jesus is God in the flesh. And that's because a simple reading of Scripture might cause you to just I'm not going to really look at verse 14. I'm just going to look at verse 1. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to think about what this might mean for me or something along those lines. The first problem Christians have is that we want a simple, straightforward answer. We have reasons for that. The Apostle Paul seems to confirm them. But being too simplistic means you're just going to frankly miss out on something. And then someone can come in and tell you some lie that then you can believe. Because you won't know the truth. Uh, But there's more ground I need to cover. A second reason I think Christians are kind of anti-intellectual is that we have an over-focus on spiritual truths over other truths. We overemphasize spiritual truths instead of other truths. Uh, Like we overemphasize doctrine over behavior. It's more important that you know what it means that Jesus gives you grace than it is that you show grace to someone else around you. It's more important that you know God loves you than it is for you to love someone around you. That's the way we kind of want to live because it's a whole lot easier to live that way. And we have a reason for it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we also have Paul saying this. Paul says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Here's Paul, and he says, Okay, you've got earthly wisdom and you've got God's wisdom, and I'm going to talk about God's wisdom, and I'm not going to pay attention to that earthly wisdom. And it's like, so we take from that. In our simplistic way of reading Scripture, we take from that. And we're like, okay, so that must mean that Christians should not pay attention to like the scientific work in the world around us. Christians should pay attention more to the doctrinal work that we get in churches and by reading the Bible and stuff. And oh, then there's Romans 12 too. 
Romans 12.2 also supports this. It says this, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. In other words, I need to have my mind transformed by the truths of God. Just by the way, um, go back to that verse and notice it doesn't tell you how to transform your mind. Notice it doesn't, it doesn't say what thoughts to think so that your mind gets transformed. That's not the point. The point isn't to talk about what it means to have a Christian mind. The point is to talk about how we need to be somehow transformed. I'll get back to that later. But Christians have this problem. We're anti-intellectual because we want simple answers. We're anti-intellectual because we have an overfocus on spiritual truth. And as a result, we end up with a kind of Christianity that's really just a bunch of beliefism. As long as you believe the right things, then you're, you're good. And you don't have to actually love or live any of these things. However, I think all religious people, you and me, I think all religious people are prone to these problems. We all want to oversimplify. We all want to be able to emphasize the spiritual thing more than the practical thing. We're all like that. But this third thing, this third thing I think is the worst, I think is the most insidious, I think is the biggest problem. And in our world today, right now, North American Christians are the most guilty of it. And I say that because I have stood in the midst of it my whole life. Let me share it with you. It is an emphasis on my God as the source of all understanding. Now, what I mean by that is not to say that God is the source of understanding. I firmly believe the Bible is telling me the truth when it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I firmly believe the Bible is telling me the truth when it says God is the ultimate source of all understanding. The problem is when I, th- I think that my God is the source of all understanding. My version of God, my perspective on God, my understanding of God, the way I read the scripture is the only way to read the scripture. The way I think about God's love is the only way to think of God's love. When I think that my God is the source of understanding, that means that I am lying to myself and to the world around me. What I'm really saying is I think I'm the source of all understanding because I'm the one who gets to determine what kind of God I think God is. And I'm the one who gets to determine what the Bible is telling me about God because I I live in the world where I get to make my own decisions about all these sorts of things. And if I don't agree with you, I'll go to another church that lets me think these things. And I'll just keep moving around until I find someone who's going to confirm my biases on all of these things. And then I can be like, yep, my God is right. He's the source of all understanding. Let me show you how the Apostle Paul actually makes this perpetuate in our world. He says this in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. He says, the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. This is the Apostle Paul saying the thing that Christians today say all the time. It basically goes like this. If you're not a Christian, I can't trust what you say because I can't tell your motives and because I don't think your brain works right. We don't say that last one. We think that last one, but we don't say it. You see, Christians believe that sin has so affected people 
that they need God to move in their heart so they can understand the things of God. And then God is the source of all understanding. And so as a result, if my life has been transformed by the grace of Jesus, then I am the one who has a brain capable of understanding the truths in this world. And if a person doesn't have the grace of Jesus on their life, then their brain can't understand real truth. And this causes all sorts of problems. But take a look at this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul says this. He says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. And we don't read the last part of that. We just focus on the first part. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so Christians will say, you can't trust science when it comes from a non-Christian. You can't trust medicine when it comes from a non-Christian. You can't trust climate science because it's only non-Christians who are pushing climate science. You can't trust vaccines because it's just, you know, non-Christians who are pushing vaccines. And there's this idea that Christians are the only ones who aren't blinded by Satan. That's the idea. The problem is, if you look at any of these verses we just looked at, in their context, you will see something 100% different than what we've just talked about. But I've got three blanks I want you to write down. What I've just described is best understood as intellectual arrogance. Or, to put it in a different phrasing, it's the idea that I have an anointed intellect. That because I have become a Christian, the Holy Spirit of God has made my brain work better than other people's brains. Because I have become a Christian, now I, my intellect, has been anointed with the truth of God in a way the world around me has not received such an anointing. And so on the one hand, a Christian might say, the, the Spirit has anointed my heart and my mind to understand things better. On another hand, it's a person who is just arrogant, and they think that they're somehow better than the people around them. And hopefully you can see how these two things work hand in hand and why the outside world might perceive Christians as judgmental and arrogant, because we are. And arrogance this way can lead to three incredibly terrible things. The first thing it can lead to is it can make us paranoid. You see, if if I know all the answers, and if my brain is working right, then that means that other person, when they disagree with me, only three things can be true. One, they're stupid. They just don't understand the thing. Two, they're blinded by Satan. Satan is actually using them against me. Or number three, they are against me. And any one of those things puts me against them. It makes me judgmental over them, and it makes me feel like, oh, they're, they're out to get me. It makes me scared. It makes me want to watch the channels on TV that tell me I should be afraid. It makes me want to listen to the podcasters that tell me how the world is out to get me. It makes me want to listen to all of the messages in my society and read all the Facebook posts and respond to all the Instagrams and whatever. It makes me want to gravitate towards the people who tell me it's right that I'm afraid. Because my intellectual arrogance can only explain the other human's activity as if they are actually my enemy. It requires humility to think that it's possible they know better than I do. Number two, 
arrogance can make us gullible. Because once you're afraid of something, it's really easy for someone to come into your world and give you the easy answer. Anytime, this is how gullibility works. This is how all conspiracy theory works. Um, Here's the thing I don't understand. Someone gives me a simple answer for that. Then this person explains to me why my enemies don't want me to know the simple answer. And then this person tells me, and the secret to the whole thing is that you've got to tell other people. Because the only problem is that more people need to know the truth. And so get that truth out there. And it doesn't matter. Maybe it's that it's hard for me to imagine that the moon is really out there and that we sent a guy out there to land on it. And, and that's hard for me to understand. And someone says, oh, no, you know television, don't you? Everybody knows television and movies. They just, they just faked that. It's just television and movies. And you're like, oh, okay. And then you don't really believe it, but they say, and this is why. It's because they're getting all this money of taxpayer money. NASA's just raking in the billions of dollars, and they're making these sham television shows because someone is getting paid off. And you're like, oh, that's terrible. I don't like that anymore. And they say, and here's the problem. No one knows about it. But if everybody knew about it, we wouldn't be giving NASA so much money. So you got to tell your friends, you better believe it. And that's how conspiracy theories work. It starts with this idea that I have to be the smartest person in the room. So if I don't understand it, it must not be true. And this is the third thing. Arrogance can make us evil. Intellectual arrogance can make us evil. There was a time in the 1960s and I know you don't follow a whole lot when it comes to like Christian doctrine and stuff like that, but in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, there was a Christian doctrine that was kind of viewed as a fringe doctrine. No one really believed it, but a book was published where this guy put forth this doctrine. His doctrine was that the entire earth has only been around for 6,000 years. And the way that the earth was created in such a rapid span of time is through massive flooding and other catastrophic events. And he published a book like in the 40s about the catastrophic events that could have created the world in such a short period of time. And no Christian at the time really believed in a 6,000-year-old earth. It wasn't a popular belief. It was just a thing that, you know, this one guy, this fringe guy decided he was going to publish. That was in like the 40s. And then 20 years later in the 60s, that doctrine got picked up again by a group of people who said, no, this is an important doctrine. We have to grab this doctrine. We have to hold on to this doctrine that God did everything in a very short period of time, six short days, 6,000 years ago. We have to hold on to this doctrine. Now, what would have happened, and it all happened in the United States. Now, what would have happened in the United States in the 60s that might have caused some Christian somewhere to say, oh no, we need to get back to this fringe idea of dramatically short period of time for God to create the entire earth. Well, I don't, I'm not an expert in history, but I know it well enough to have some guesses. And one of my guesses is this. As a result of the short earth, young earth doctrine, you have to conclude that God didn't just make the earth in a short period of time. He made the variety of differences in people in a short period of time, which means God chose to make white people and black people and different colored skin people. God chose that. 
And because God chose to create a white person and create a black person and create an olive-skinned person, because God chose to do that, God must want them to be different from each other. God must want them to be separate from each other. God must want them to be somehow segregated from each other. And if God chose to make a white person and a black person and an olive-skinned person, maybe God also chose one of them to be more prominent in the world or in society than the others. And I kid you not, the doctrine of the separation of races in the Christian church was largely motivated by a resurgence of the doctrine of a young earth creation idea. And so here's the thing. Arrogance can lead you to evil. If you think you're right about something and you have to find a way to explain how you're right, it can lead you to all kinds of paths that take you to a place where you're no longer loving your neighbor, where you're no longer proclaiming Jesus. Arrogance can lead to all kinds of evil. So what do we do about it? Well, let me just show you the context of the verses I've already showed you. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm just going to read more of the verses now. Take a look at this. This is most of the stuff we've already seen. Paul says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Oh, interesting. He chose to know nothing except Jesus because when he came to them, he was scared of something. When he came to them, he was feeling weak about something. When he came to them, he had fear and trembling about something. So he made a decision to know nothing with them about anything except for Jesus because he was afraid of something. What might he have been afraid of? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Okay, so Paul was afraid that they might fall in love with what he's saying because of how well he said it, and he didn't want that. He wanted them to fall in love with what he was saying because it was true. Keep going. He says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. That's the point. He was afraid they might put too much emphasis on him and not enough emphasis on what he was saying. He was being anti-celebrity. That's what he was doing. Keep going. He says, we do, however, speak of, no, let's go back to that. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Okay, so he's now identifying humans who are speaking a different kind of wisdom. The rulers of this age speaking different kinds of wisdom. Keep going. He says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness. Okay, there it is. So Paul, if something doesn't come from God's Spirit, then it's foolishness, right? Okay, now we're back on track. If it's not from God, then we just you know, treat it as foolishness. No, keep going. He says, because the person can't understand them because they are discerned only only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. Who's known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that's brilliant. Now we've got a little bit where we understand Paul is afraid of celebrity, but we also understand that Paul is talking about spiritual realities that can only be understood in spiritual terms. But what about everything else? Just keep reading the very next verse. 
says this. Let's put it up there from chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. Why was Paul afraid of the celebrity mentality? Because the people he's talking to are still worldly. And what they need is a Jesus-only celebrity. What they need is a Jesus, Jesus, Jesus focus. That's what they need. They desperately need Jesus only, Jesus always, Jesus start with Jesus, end with Jesus. That's what they need. Anything else that gets in the way is going to be a problem for these people because these people are infants. These people are worldly. And keep going, he'll tell them straight up why they're such infants. He says, for since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul and another, I follow Apollo, are you not mere human beings? That's his point. He says, some of you are following me. Some of you are following Apollos. Get over it. It's about Jesus. I resolved to know nothing with you except Jesus because I didn't want you to fall in love with me. Here's the point. The passage that we use to convince us that Christianity somehow has a special mind is literally a passage where Paul is trying to make the point that you aren't that special. You are worldly because your value system is out of line with God's value system. You are worldly because you are paying attention to the things that tickle your fancy and you are not allowing yourself to learn the truth first. And if you were mature, then we could start learning something. Then we could start using our minds. So I want to end my time with you today by simply giving you three values, a few blanks, and you're going to take it home and think about it. The three values I want you to learn are, first of all, maturity, secondly, humility, and thirdly, freedom. First of all, maturity. Next week, I'm going to talk a little bit about what it means to be a mature Christian. But I want us to recognize that until I am mature on the inside, I will not be able to determine what is spiritual and what is not. I will not be able to make that determination. And so maturity has to be a first step. I need to be a person, and here's just a giveaway for next week, who knows the truth and does the truth. Number two, humility. I need to be a person who admits that I am not the smartest one in the room. I need to be a person who admits that I don't know all the answers. I need to be a person who admits that I need to learn. I need to be a person who uses my mind by letting other people use their mind to tell me what I need to know. And then number three, freedom. You got to realize this. This is unbelievably important. If God has changed your heart and your mind, then you have more freedom to learn the things of his world than anyone else because you know why. Because you know who's behind it. Like Sir Isaac Newton, that's not going to change your search to know the answers for how. But you're you're not going to be more free to do it because you know why. 
There's some people who invest their hearts and their minds in studying these things, and they're just doing it because they like to learn. But you can do it because you love the God who gave you your mind. And so let me just give you a couple things. I'm, I'm way over the amount of time I wanted to take today, but let me give you four little things to write down, ways to take it home. Um, and every one of these four things, I would love to coach you individually in if you wanted to go that route, but I'll just give them to you as quickly as I can. Number one, I think you should learn the principles of study. And when I say study, I mean the principles of how to study your Bible. That includes things like understanding literature. That includes things like understanding vocabulary. That includes things like understanding grammar. That includes things like understanding how to understand the genre of a different text and how poetry works and to admit the fact that you don't know how to read your Bible all that well. So we need to learn the principles of study. But not just studying your Bible. I'm also including science and journalism. You need to know how scientists actually come across their answers. You need to know how journalists actually do journalistic work. You need to know the difference between a reporter and an opinion columnist and some, out, some guy out there who's just sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt. You need to know the difference between these types of people who portray themselves as journalists. Because you can't just say, quote unquote, mainstream media is out to get you. That's paranoia. What you need to do is say, what is this person doing? Are they doing journalism? Are they doing opinion? Are they doing fear, uncertainty, and doubt? What's their goal? What's their purpose? Understand the principles of study. Number two, understand what God's word actually teaches. Sometimes someone is going to come up to you and they're going to tell you some mythological story about something going on in the Christian world, something going on in the Bible, and you're just going to like nodding your head and you're going to be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, God does help those who help themselves. And like, no, that's not in the Bible. Don't, don't continue to accept this stuff. Know what the Bible actually teaches, not just what someone else tells you. And here's a great way to cut the divide between what someone's telling you and what's actually truth. Ask the person for their evidence. Did you know the Bible tells you that uh, you should reject modern science? Show me the evidence. What's the Bible passage? Let's look at the context. Let's see what it says. Did you know the Bible promotes essential oils as the way to heal people? Well, show me your evidence. Where in the Bible does it actually mention anything like that? I mean, the things might work. I don't, I mean, things might work. There might be some medicinal value in some of these things. There might just be some pleasant value in the smell of the things, but it's not in my Bible. It's, side note, it's weird I find that sometimes Christians are like all in the nature side of things with regard to scripture when a lot of, with regard to medicine and whatnot, when a lot of their natural remedies come from Eastern mysticism and like completely outside of scripture, but then they're like, oh, I love this. I love this trick about rubbing cinnamon on my, on my foot. And so I'm just going to keep doing that. And I'll make up a way it's biblical. But anyway, uh, and then the next one I want you to do is to be humble enough to actually learn from experts. I want you to be humble enough to actually learn from experts. Who's an expert? Well, he's not the dude who's posting things to Instagram, okay? An expert is a person who does what they do whether you pay attention to them or not. An expert is a person who does what they do whether they benefit from your attention or not. That's an expert. The other people are pundits or celebrities, but an expert is a person who's doing what they do whether you pay attention or not. That's one easy way to understand the difference. And then the last one, I want you to connect the truths of the Bible to the truths of the world and do something about it. 
act. Oh man, I've got so many issues on my heart that I have heard over my last uh, 40-some years of people who are uptight about some Christian doctrine, meaning this thing or that thing. They, they have doctrinal reasons why they believe what they believe about um, different races of people. They have doctrinal reasons why they believe what they believe about Israel and the Palestinian conflict. They have doctrinal reasons why they believe what they believe about climate change. I've heard it all. I've heard it all. And I just want to say, just for crying out loud, let's get back to saying, what does the Bible really tell me to do? Oh, love people? I'm not doing that one yet very well. Let's start there. And then all these other things I might later on be mature enough to understand. Connect the truths of God's word to the truths in the world and act. If God's word tells me to love people, well, you know what? The conservatives have one way of loving people and the liberals have another way of loving people. And the Bible's not going to give me the answer of which one of those methods is guaranteed to work. But the Bible is going to tell me what type of person I'm supposed to be in the midst of it. And the kind of people I'm supposed to build around me. And so I can't, I can't give you a whole bunch of individual sorts of this thing or that thing, but I want you to be people who love the Lord with your mind, who think through things well, apply them well, and then live them well. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And His plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.